Chapter Four of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Chapter Four. Sluice. Thirteen Forty. The gold nobles of the coinage of King Edward the Third show in conventional fashion the king standing in the waist of a ship with a high bow and poop the red cross banner of st george at the stern and the lines of england and the lilies of france emblazoned on his shield the device typifies his claim to the sovereignty of the narrow seas between england and the continent the prize won for him by the fleet that conquered at sluice sluice is often spoken of as the sea fight that inaugurated the long victorious career of the british navy it would be more correct to say that it was the battle which, by giving King Edward the command of the Channel, made his successful invasion of France possible, and secured for England the possession of Calais. Holding both Dover and Calais, the English for two centuries were masters of the narrow sea-gate through which all the trade between northern Europe and the rest of the world had to pass. They had the power of bringing severe pressure to bear upon the German cities of the Hansa League, the traders of the Low Countries, the merchants of Spain, Genoa, and Venice, by their control of this all-important waterway. Hence the claim upheld, till the seventeenth century, that the King of England was sovereign of the seas, and that in the Channel and the North Sea every foreign ship had to lower her sails and salute any English kingship that she met. Sluice, which had such far-reaching consequences, was not the first of English naval victories. Alfred the Great maintained in the latter part of his reign a fleet of small ships to guard the coasts against the Norse and Danish pirates, and this won him the name of founder of the British navy. But for centuries after there was no attempt at forming or keeping up a regular naval establishment. Alfred's navy must have been dispersed under his weaker successors, for the Northmen never found any serious obstacles to their raids. Harold had no navy, and the result was that in a single twelve-month England was twice invaded, first by Harold Hadrada and Tostig, who were beaten at Stamford Bridge, and then by William the Norman, who conquered at Hastings. But even the conqueror had no fighting fleet. His ships were used merely to ferry his army across the Channel, and he made no attempt to use them against the Northmen, who harried the east coast. The record of victory begins with the reign of King John, when in 1213 William Longsword, his half-brother, with a fleet guarded from the shipping of Dover and the southeastern ports, destroyed a French fleet that had assembled on the coast of the Netherlands to transport an invading army to England. Damme, that is, the dams or embankments to keep out the sea, was then a fortified port. It is now a Dutch village, some miles from the coast, in the midst of green meadows won from the sea, with roads shaded by avenues of trees, and only the traffic of its canal to remind it that it once had a harbour, Four years later, Hubert de Burg, governor of Dover Castle, defeated another attempted raid on England by improvising a fleet and attacking the French squadron in the Straits. De Burg got to windward of the French, then sailed down on them, grappled and boarded them. There was an incident which happily we do not hear of again in naval warfare. As the English scrambled on board of the French ships, they threw quicklime in the eyes of their opponents. It was, no doubt, an ugly trick of piratical fighting, 
for in those days, when there was no police of the seas, there was a certain amount of piracy and smuggling carried on by the men of Dover and the Cinque Ports. Just as for lack of police protection, highway robbery was a danger of travel by road, so till organized naval power developed, there was a good deal of piracy in the European seas, and peaceful traders sailed in large fleets for mutual protection, just as travellers on land took care to have companions for a journey. The channel was also enlivened by occasional fights for fishing grounds between fleets of fishing craft, and the quick-climb trick of Hubert de Burgh's battle was probably one of the methods of this irregular warfare. Edward I had a navy which did useful service by coasting northward, as his armies marched into Scotland, and securing for them regular supplies and reinforcements by sea. Under his weak successor the sea was neglected, and it was the third Edward who used the navy effectually to secure that his quarrel with France should be fought out not on English ground, but on the continent, and thus became the founder of the sea power of England. There was no royal navy in the modern sense of the term. When the king went to war, his fleet was recruited from three different sources. The warship was a merchantman, on board of which a number of fighting men, knights, men-at-arms, archers and billmen were embarked. These were more numerous than the crew of sailors which navigated the ship, for the largest vessels of the time were not of more than two to three hundred tons, and as oars were not used in the rough seas of the channel, and there was only one mast with a single square sail, and perhaps a jib foresail, the necessary hands for sailing her were few. There was a dual command, the knight or noble who led the fighting man being no sailor, and having a pilot under him who commanded the sailors and navigated the ship. This dual arrangement, which we have seen at work in the fleets of more ancient days, left its traces in our navy up to the middle of the nineteenth century, when ships of the Royal Navy still had, besides the captain, a sailing-master among their officers. The king owned a small number of ships, which he maintained, just as he kept a number of knights in his pay to form his personal retinue on land. During peace he hired these ships out to merchants, and when he called them back for war service he took the crews that navigated them into his pay and sent his fighting men on board. But the king's ships were the least numerous element in the war fleet. Merchantmen were impressed for service from London and the other maritime towns and cities, the feudal levy providing the fighting complement. A third element in the fleet was obtained from the Cinque Ports. There were really seven, not five of them. Dover, Hythe, Hastings, Winchelsea, Rye, Romney, and Sandwich. Under their charter they enjoyed valuable privileges, in return for which they were bound to provide, when the king called upon them, fifty-seven ships and twelve hundred men and boys for fifteen days at their own expense, and as long after as the king paid the necessary charges. The naming of so short a term of service shows that maritime operations were expected not to last long. It was, indeed, a difficult matter to keep a medieval fleet at sea, and the conditions that produced this state of things lasted far into the modern period. Small ships, crowded with fighting men, had no room for any large store of provisions and water. When the first scanty supply was exhausted, unless they were in close touch with a friendly port, they had to be accompanied by a crowd of stall ships, and as the best merchantmen would naturally have been impressed for the actual fighting, these would be small, inferior, and less seaworthy ships, and the fleet would have to pay as much attention to guarding its convoy as to operating against an enemy. No wonder that as a rule the most that could be attempted was a short voyage and a single stroke. It was in 1340 that King Edward III 
challenged the title of Philip of Valois to the crown of France, and by claiming it for himself began the Hundred Years' War. Both sides to the quarrel began to collect fleets and armies, and both realized that the first struggle would be on the sea. It would be thus decided whether the war was to be fought out on French or on English ground. The French king collected ships from his ports and strengthened his fleet by hiring a number of large warships from Genoa, then one of the great maritime republics of the Mediterranean. The Genoese sailors knew the northern seas, for there were always some of their ships in the great trading fleet that passed up the channel each spring, bringing the produce of the Mediterranean countries and the east to the northern ports of Europe, and returned in the late summer laden with the merchandise of the Hansa traders. Early in the year King Philip had assembled a hundred and ninety ships, large and small, French and Genoese, off the little town of Sluis on the coast of Flanders. The fleet lay in the estuary of the river Ede. Like Damme, Sluis has now become an inland village. Its name means the Sluis, and like Damme reminds us how the people of the Netherlands have for centuries been winning their land from the sea by their great system of dams to keep the sea-water back and sluices to carry the river-water to the sea. The estuary of the Ede, where the French fleet anchored, is now pasture-land, traversed by a canal, and the embankments that keep the sea from the meadowlands lie some miles to the westward of the place where King Edward won his great naval victory. Had the French acted at once, there was nothing to prevent them from opening the war by invading England. Perhaps they did not know how slowly the English fleet was assembling. In the late spring, when the French armament was nearly complete, King Edward had only forty ships ready. They lay in the estuaries of the Orwell and the Stour, inside Harwich, long a place of importance for English naval wars in the North Sea. Gradually, week after week, other ships came in from the Thames and the northern seaports, from Southampton and the Cinque Ports, and even from Bristol, creeping slowly along the coasts from harbour to harbour. All this time the French might have swept the seas and destroyed the English in detail, but they waited for more ships and more men, and the time of opportunity went by. At last, in the beginning of June, the English king had two hundred ships assembled, from decked vessels down to open sailing boats. An army crowded on board of them, knights and nobles in shining armour, burghers and peasants in steel caps and leather jergens, armed with a longbow or the combined pike and long battle-axe known as the bill. The king's ship flew the newly adopted royal standard in which the golden lions on a red field, the arms of England, were quartered with the golden lilies of France on a field of blue, and another banner displaying the device that is still the flag of the royal navy, the red cross of St. George on a field of white, the banner adopted by Richard Coeur de Lyon in his crusade. The other ships, flew the banners of the barons and knights who commanded them, and on the royal ship and those of the chief commanders there were trumpeters whose martial notes were to give the signal for battle. As a knight of the Middle Ages despised the idea of fighting on foot, and there might be a landing in Flanders, some of the barons had provided for all eventualities by taking with them their heavy war-horses, uncomfortably stabled in the holds of the larger ships. The fleet sailed southward along the coast, keeping the land in sight, the two hundred ships of varying rates of speed and handiness could not move in the ordered lines of a modern naval armament, but streamed along in an irregular procession, closing up when they anchored for the night. From the north foreland, with a favourable wind behind them, they put out into the open sea, and steering eastward were out of sight of land for a few hours, 
a more venturous voyage for these coasting craft than the crossing of the Atlantic is for us today. It must have been a trying experience for knight and yeoman, and they must have felt that a great peril was passed when the tops of church towers and windmills showed above the horizon, and then the low shore, fringed with sand hills, and the green dikes came in sight. Coasting along the shore northeastwards, the fleet reached a point to the northwest of Bruges, not far from where the watering place of Blankenberg now stands. It had been ascertained from fishermen and coast folk that the French fleet was still at Sluis, and it was decided to proceed no further without reconnoitring the enemy. The larger ships anchored, the smaller were beached. The fighting men landed and camped on the shore to recover from the distresses of their voyage, during which they would have been cramped up in narrow quarters. Instead of, like a modern admiral, sending some of his lighter and swifter ships to take a look at the enemy, King Edward arranged a cavalry reconnaissance, a simple matter for his knightly following. Some of the horses were got ashore, and a party of knights mounted and rode over the sandhills towards Sluis. They reached a point where, without being observed by the enemy, they could get a good view of the hostile fleet, and they brought back news that made the king decide to attack next day. The French fleet was commanded by two knights, the Sieur de Crier and the Sieur de Bauchet. Crier's name suggests that he came of the Breton race that has given so many good sailors and naval officers to France, so perhaps he knew something of the sea. Associated with the two French commanders, there was an experienced fighting admiral, a veteran of the wars of the Mediterranean, Barbavera, who commanded the Genoese ships. Though they had a slight superiority of numbers and more large ships than the English, Carrier and Bauchet were, as one might expect from their prolonged inactivity, very wanting in enterprise now that the crisis had come. They were preparing to fight on the defensive. It was in vain that the experienced commander Barbavera urged that they should weigh anchor and fight the English in the open sea, where numbers and weight would give them an advantage that would be lost in the narrow waters of the Ede estuary. They persisted in awaiting the attack. The French fleet was anchored along the south shore of the river mouth, sterns to the land, its left towards the river mouth, its right towards the town of Sluis. The vessel on the extreme left was an English ship of large size, the great Christopher, captured in the channel in the first days of the war. The ships were grouped in three divisions, left, centre, and right. Kyrie and Bauchet adopted the same plan of battle that King Olaf had used at Swold. The ships in each of the three divisions were lashed together, side by side, so that they could only be boarded by the high narrow bows, and there was an addition to the Norse plan, for inboard, across the bows, barricades had been erected, formed of oars, spars, and planking, fastened across the forecastle decks. Behind these barriers, archers and Genoese crossbowmen were posted. There was a second line of archers in the fighting tops, for since the times of Norse warfare the masts had become heavier, and now supported above the crossyard a kind of crow's nest, where two or three bowmen could be stationed, with shields hung round them as a parapet. The fleet thus was converted into a series of three long, narrow, floating forts. It was an intelligible plan of defence for a weak fleet against a strong one, but a hopeless plan for an armament strong enough to have met its opponents on the open sea, ship to ship. At Solt, Eric Jarl had shown that such an array could be destroyed piecemeal if assailed on an exposed flank, and at Sluice the left, where the great Christopher lay to seaward, positively invited such an attack. 
King Edward saw his advantage as soon as his knights came back from their adventurous ride, and told him what they had seen, and he arranged his plans accordingly. His great ships were to lead the attack, and concentrate their efforts on the left of the French line. The rest were to pass inside them, and engage the enemy in front, on the left and centre. The enemy had by tying up his ships made it impossible to come to the rescue of the left, even if the narrow waters of the estuary would have allowed him to deploy his force into line. The English would have, and could not fail to keep, a local superiority from the very outset on the left of the enemy, and once it came to close quarters they would clear the French and Genoese decks from end to end of the line, taking ship after ship. While the attack developed, the English archers would prepare the way for it by thinning the ranks of their enemies on the ships in the centre and then on the right. At dawn on 24th June, the day of battle, the wind was blowing fair into the mouth of Ede, but the tide was ebbing, and the attack could not be driven home till it turned, and gave deep water everywhere between the banks of the inlet. King Edward used the interval to array his fleet, and get it into position for the dash into the river. His ships stood out to sea on the starboard tack, a brave sight with the midsummer sun shining on the white sails, the hundreds of banners glowing with red, blue, white and gold, the painted shields hanging on poop and bulwark. On the raised bows and sterns of the larger ships, barons and knights and men-at-arms stood arrayed in complete armour. The archers were ranged along the bulwarks, or looked out from the crow's-nest tops over the swelling sails. Old Babavera must have longed to cut lashings, slip cables, drift out on the tide, and meet the English in the open, but he was in a minority of one against two and now the tide was dead slack, and began to turn, and King Edward's trumpets gave the expected signal for action. As their notes rang over the sea, the shouting sailors squared the yards, and the fleet began to scud before the wind for the river-mouth, where beyond the green dikes that kept the entrance free, a forest of masts bristled along the bank towards Sluice. The English came in with wind and tide helping them, several ships abreast, the rest following each as quickly as she might, like a great flock of sea-birds streaming towards the shore. There could be no long-ranging fire to prelude the close attack. At some sixty yards, when men could see each other's faces across the gap, the English archers drew their bows, and the cloth-yard arrows began to fly, their first target the great Christopher on the flank of the line. Bolts from crossbows came whizzing back in reply. But, as at Crissy soon after, the longbow, with its rapid discharge of arrows, proved its superiority over the slower mechanical weapon of the Genoese crossbowmen. But no time was lost in mere shooting. Two English ships crashed into the bows and the port side of the Christopher, and with a cry of St. George for England, a score of knights vied with each other for the honour of being first on board of the enemy. The other ships of the English van swung round bow to bow with the necks of the French line, grappled and fought to board them. King Edward himself climbed over the bows of a French ship, risking his life as freely as the youngest of his esquires. Then, for a while, on the French left, it was a question of which could best handle the long, heavy swords, made not for deft fencing-work, but for sheer hard hacking at helmet and breastplate. Behind this fight, on the flank, ship after ship slipped into the river, but at first attacked only the left division closely, those that had pushed furthest in opening with arrow-fire on the centre and leaving the right to look helplessly on. The English archers soon cleared the enemy's tops of their bowmen, and then, 
from the English masts shot coolly into the throng on the hostile decks, their comrades at the bulwarks shooting over the heads of those engaged in the bows. The English arrows inflicted severe loss on the enemy, but the real business was done by the close attack of the boarding parties that cleared ship after ship from the left inwards, each ship attacked in turn having to meet the knights and men-at-arms from several of the English vessels. But the French fought with determined courage, and hour after hour went by as the attack slowly worked its way along the line. The slaughter was terrible, for in a sea-fight, as in the storming of a city wall, no quarter was asked or given. The crews of the captured ships were cut down as they fought, or driven over the stern into the water, where, for the most part, their heavy armour drowned them. It was past noon, and the tide was turning, when the left and centre, the squadrons of Kyrie and Bauche, were all captured. Then the attack raged round the nearest vessels on the right, tall ships of the Genoese. Most of these, too, were taken, but as the tide ran out, King Edward feared his large ships would ground in the upper waters of the estuary, and the signal was given to break off the attack, an order welcome even to the weary victors. Barbavera, with a few ships, got clear of the beaten right wing and lay up near Sluis, while the English plundered and burned some of their prizes and took the best of them out to sea on the ebbing tide. In the night the Genoese admiral slipped out to sea and got safely away. The French fleet had been utterly destroyed, and the Genoese sailors had no intention of further risking themselves in King Philip's quarrel. They thought only of returning as soon as might be to the Mediterranean. King Edward went on to Ghent, after landing his fighting men, and sending his fleet to bring further forces from England. Henceforth, for many a long year, he might regard the Channel as a safe highway for men and supplies for the war in France. The victory of the English had cost them a relatively trifling loss. The French losses are said to have been nearly thirty thousand men. Strange to say, among the English dead were four ladies who had embarked on the king's ship to join the queen's court at Ghent. How they were killed is not stated. Probably they were courageous dames whose curiosity led them to watch the fight from the tall poop of the flagship as they would have watched a tournament from the galleries of the lists, and there the crossbow bolts of the Genoese found them. There is an old story that men feared to tell King Philip the news of the disaster, and the court jester broke the tidings with a casual remark that the French must be braver than the English, for they jumped into the sea by scores while the islanders stuck to their ships. The defeat at sea prepared the way for other defeats by land, and in these campaigns there appeared a new weapon of war, rudely fashioned cannon of short range and slow, inaccurate fire, the precursors of heavier artillery that was to change the whole character of naval warfare. It was the coming of the cannon that inaugurated the modern period. But before telling of battles in which artillery played the chief part, we must tell of a decisive battle that was a link between old and new. Lepanto, the battle that broke the Turkish power in the Mediterranean, saw, like the sea-fights of later days, artillery in action, and at the same time oar-driven galleys fighting with the tactics that had been employed at Salamis and Actium, and knights in armour storming the enemy's ships like Eric Jarl at Svold and King Edward at Sluis. End of chapter 4